Hi, I'm Frankie Frayne, and I've been making movies since I was a kid. I've made three low-budget feature films of varying success, and I went to film school. Twice. For better or worse, I've developed a science for completing feature-length projects on pocket change, and it has a lot to do with the kinds of conversations you'll hear on this podcast with teachers, friends, and artists. You don't have to pay 40 grand a year for bad advice. This is Discount Film School. Welcome back to Discount Film School. Um, you know his words will get you further than the films will ever go. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being, I'm being cheesy. I'm, say, I'm saying his, um, the intro to his reviews. I'm talking to Confused Matthew, man. If anybody uh, watches Confused Matthew film reviews online, that's the dude I'm talking to today. Um, and if you haven't watched them, uh, go check them out. I actually hesitate to call them reviews. Uh, you, you've actually uh, described them as kind of... Um, Screenplay analyses, which I think is much more apt. Yes. Uh, I would not call what I do reviews. I actually wouldn't call my – I wouldn't go so far as to call myself a film critic per se. I, I really I really do – I am just looking at one or two aspects, mostly the screenplay stuff. I mean uh, the as far as who's directing it, as far as the you know set design and all that. Um, I think that's important – not not really what I'm interested in. So it is a very narrow uh, – what, what I'm looking at is a very narrow aspect. Yeah, if you, if you, if you haven't heard uh, this guy's voice before now that it's popped up, um, it, it, it's – what he does is he marries um, these kind of sometimes uh, uh, somewhat scripted and, and often off the cuff for sort of more general reviews um, – you know, he basically, uh, well, the, the inception of your videos, they kind of started out with, uh, we would just kind of see frames, right? You would sort of almost tell it like a, like a storybook and, yes. um, and, and your narration was kind of ever present. And I actually, I remember, um, if we, if we can go back to when I first discovered the videos, I had just, it was 2008, Indiana Jones four was about to come out. I had put up, uh, this little cartoon, the second Lucas cartoon that I had made. I kind of got, I, I get re-inspired to make fun of George Lucas every like six years, six to seven years. Um, I love it. And uh, thank you. And um, I ran into one comment. It was one of the first comments that went up. It was from this motherfucker called Confused Matthew. This little, <laughs> this weird little uh, graphic. And and uh, kind of like you, I actually read most of the, even though I get a lot of comments, I actually read most of them. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I, I think it said something that uh, now knowing you, it was barely in your voice, but it was like, you done confused Matthew Proud Boy. I'll, I'll I remember re that. I remember that very well. I, I remember that exact – the fact that you remember those exact words uh, is, is phenomenal to me because I remember those exact words. And it was uh, – uh, yeah, I, it was the most rednecky comment I've ever made in my life. And I, I, did, I didn't even think I was going to get a response, but you're like – and it's it's funny because you, I think you emailed me after that, or, or you or you yeah, at least commented me. back, and then I think you watched my prequel reviews. Here's what and, happened. And it's, uh, what, what I I uh, the comment inspired me to click, which never happens. But some, uh, somehow I was like, well, I'm so glad I did confused Matthew well <laughs> that, that I, I I took a look at it. And, uh, and there were three-part reviews of The Phantom Menace. Now, this is before Plinkett. This is before Red Letter Media, um, which I, I love as well. But this was the first time that somebody did this, like, deep dive. And normally, when you run into uh, YouTube reviews, what I'm used to seeing is somebody talking into, like, a USB mic, kind of like, you know, what I thought of the film The Phantom Menace was the... You know, I, I didn't quite like the comedy in it. And, I, and, and it's, it's kind of like I can't, it's barely watchable, barely listenable. Nobody watches this shit. But this, this prequel review sucked my ass right in. And I called up uh, one of my best friends, Keith Sadek, who's in a bunch of my movies. I was like, dial up Confused Matthew, motherfucker, and start watching these. And we actually we were like texting all night, just cracking up, being like uh, uh, guardians of truth and justice, my ass and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> I just I loved here's what I loved about what you did. And about and this is some of what I kind of want to talk about. You take screenplays, you take the actions of characters, their dialogue and their actions, you take them at face value, which is often disparate 
from what the screenplay wants to achieve, right? So it's trying, it's driving to a moment or it's driving to some kind of climax and, and, and you're noticing the missteps. You're noticing, well, this char- but this character said this. We're meant to understand this. And rather than, than kind of, um, <laughs> I, I like you at your best when you're, you're not really saying that the filmmaker made a mistake. You're just counting up the hypocrisies and counting up the contradictions. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that, and it, it's, it's interesting that you're talking about the strategy of my reviews. Yeah. Because honestly, I didn't even know I had a strategy to these reviews until people started talking about them. Because I, I, you know, I kind of fell into film criticism the way drunks often stumble out of a bar. I uh, honestly have, n- I, I, I don't want to say I have no idea what I'm doing, but I have no, I have no plan and I really have no goal other than just taking what I see in the films and saying it on mic. Well, that just, that, that means that's just your, your mind then. That's the way you receive information. Yeah, that's, that's the, that, that, that was what I wanted to do. Like in the beginning of all of this, I kind of made a deal with myself. And this, this is like with the Back to the Future 2, Lion King, mm-hmm. Star Wars, and Matrix. Th- those four, probably more than any of the others. Yeah. Except for maybe Minority Report. I made a deal <laughs> with myself. If I'm sitting at a movie, and I have a reaction to it. When I do the review, I have to enunciate what that reaction was. It, whether it was, I, I, I don't particularly understand what this character is doing, or fuck you, Steven Spielberg. Yeah. If that matches the, the, the experience that I had watching the film, I have to say it. Mm-hmm. And that, I guess, if, if there is any strategy that I have to my reviews, it's that I have to be as honest as possible uh, about the experience that I had. Mm-hmm. And so, um, especially with the Star Wars reviews, like the, 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 the episode one review that I did, that pretty much wrote itself. I don't think I have that much of a different take on that film as, as anybody else did. Uh, but then for people to, to come back and say, oh, you know, the first two weren't that great, but episode three, it was so, I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> it had exactly the same problems in exactly the same places with exactly the same characters that the first two did. What what ex, what is good about this? It was what like, sets it, this apart from the other two? It was like an alcoholic of a film. It just kind of lied to you again. And you're <laughs> yeah. like, you're falling back into your old habits. Or like it's an abused spouse to keep coming back. <laughs> you're like, no, this time it's going to work. I'm sorry. This time <laughs> it's really good. It's going to be nice to me and it's not going to beat me in the face anymore. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, th- that, that, that film series, uh, more I think than any of the other had so much of the same problems and it had so many character consistencies especially with the Anakin and Padme relationship uh, where yeah, you touched you know, on that he's, a lot. he's being a dickhead and killing kids and adults and being a dick to everyone the whole time suddenly at the end we're supposed to believe that this is the first time she's seen this when in fact he came to her in episode 2 and almost very proudly admitted that he killed a bunch of kids. What was, and do you remember what her reaction was? Yeah, she said she, uh, she had is... no reaction. Yeah, lo- they, I think she said something like uh, to be angry is to be yeah, human. Yeah, that's, yeah. Well, holy shit, lady. If, <laughs> if, if anger is translating into killing a bunch of women and children, if that's what it is to be human, we all need to be locked up in a fucking mental asylum. And that's, I mean, when, that's when in your episode three review you nail it when <clears throat> she's like, I can't believe he would kill younglings. <laughs> And, and what exactly changed between the last time he did this and this time that he did this, other than the fact that the movie needs us to care about that? But you've, well, but you've opened up a really interesting point, which is that – so why would Lucas – why would Lucas not see that as clearly as you do and as everybody now does? I think I have a theory. I think it's because Tusken Raiders aren't actors. They're in costumes. I think that's what it is. And <laughs> – even though he humanizes them by like Anakin's the one who says he's like, and not just the women, but the children and the kids. Yeah. That, that, you know, I got, I like you get a lot of responses to what I do and, and, and probably more than you, I get very negative responses and, oh, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, sometimes they're very mean spirited and I can't really complain about that. Cause I, I do kind of open myself up to that. I'm doing very controversial reviews. 
uh, I don't I know how it. controversial the episode one review is, but um, people come back to me and they said, well, the, the difference between Anakin killing the, the sand people and killing actual human children is that the sand people aren't people. And I'm like, sand people. But they're called sand people. <laughs> and, and, and not only that, but like, so if your argument is that they're killing just animals, then why is he saying, I didn't just kill the men. I killed the women and the children. You don't make that distinction when you kill animals. Maybe you'll say, oh, I killed the baby deer. I can't believe I killed the baby deer. But you don't really differentiate between male and female animals. It's really just, I killed animals. Right. He's making a very specific distinction uh, between just killing men and killing two people. That he, uh, he wouldn't be saying this if he didn't know that the women and the children were innocent. That's what's supposed to give him his pathos and his, oh, my God, I can't believe I did this. So to then turn around and say... Oh, you killed kids this time? Holy shit, what yeah. was I doing that whole... Why did I bother to marry this person if he's slaughtering... I mean, Anakin was slaughtering everybody in, in, in these films. I mean, when he, when, he, when he wasn't slaughtering them, he was being a dick to them. What's the... And, you, have, and, you have a line in the... I think it's in the episode three review. It's so throwaway, but so brilliant. You say it so quickly. It's something like, so Anakin goes back to his regular routine of killing everybody or something like that. Yeah, his normal yeah, routine. So, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. Uh, Just, even I. I haven't seen uh, the Star Wars prequels since I did those reviews. I really have no reason to ever to ever try them again. It, it, even it, though it we haven't. Been, it had been a while for for me as well. And and to to the point that I forgot that I liked the original trilogy. Uh, like it, like it, I totally spaced the whole thing out. And you know, I bought that Blu-ray set with that awful extra no in it and all that nonsense. Because I'm a yeah. fucking. Because I'm a piece of shit, and I'll buy things over and over again. I get this wall of DVDs, this nonsensical wall of DVDs. But I have this, like, cool kind of theater room downstairs. And uh, and every, every like, three years, my wife decides to forget everything that happened in Star Wars. And it's like, what happens in those Star Wars pictures again? And so I was like, you know what? Let's, uh, like, I got these Blu-rays. Let's go downstairs, watch the complete saga from beginning to end. I've never really had that experience before. But we added something really nice to it. We would finish it out. Finish one movie at a time, and then we would watch the Plinkett review for that film and the Confused Matthew review, and it was a fucking joy. It was this really cool weekend of just, of Star Wars. But what we discovered was was that uh, a New Hope is awesome, and we discovered that Empire Strikes Back is just like come in my face. Oh yeah, and Return of the Jedi is not so good. Like Return mm. of the Jedi is like, and, and everybody always told me that when I was a kid, and I never quite realized it. But as far as the prequels, so that, but those are three great movies. As far as the prequels go, Phantom Menace is the best one. By like, I mean that's like that's comparing turds, but uh-huh. <laughs> but <laughs> it really truly like the somehow I think that in 1999 when he was like I'm gonna make another movie, he he thought he had to shoot it on film. He had to have some degree of, like, diversity in shots. Like, there's one shot. Here's a good example. There's, like, one very quick shot in, like, his uh, Anakin's little homestead where he's looking at C-3PO. And it's from C-3PO's point of view. The, the camera, the POV is, is from his point of view. He looks at Anakin. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, not, it's, it's not Kubrick. <laughs> it's, it's not, it doesn't reinvent cinema. But mm-hmm. it's just a little tiny bit of inventiveness in the moment. There, you will not see anything remotely like that in the second two movies. They are all shot in these reverse, like shot, reverse shot on a green screen. And when there is action, it's fully animated. It, it really is like he had like a stroke and they were like, well, we got to kind of like piece together a movie now without a director. Mm-hmm. They, they, they blow. Anybody who says that third one is any good is, is snorting something. Well, yeah, um, I, 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 I don't see... I honestly don't see very much of a difference between the three. It's interesting that you should talk about the shot, though, because, I mean, while I know that I I focus primarily on the screenplay, even if you take a step back and look at those three films as a whole, they're not good in any form. I mean, even just in in terms of the way they're shot, in terms of the way that, I mean, 95, God, that's a fucking low estimate not 95 percent of it is green screen and it looks like green screen oh yeah and uh, more more than uh i mean i know that the since 
CGI effects have become more and more popular. A lot of people are using them. But even when you did your uh, uh, your Indiana Jones uh, mm-hmm. parody video, mm-hmm. talking about how Peter Jackson uses those effects, I mean, he uses them. Yeah, he doesn't just put them in the film because he has access to green screen. He has access to ILM. Uh, they're they actually serve a purpose, and he only uses them when they will serve a purpose, or if he can't do it any other way. Yeah, at least there that was the, at least that was the case in the Lord of the Rings movies. It seems like like Hobbit on he kind of turned the dial up, and I'm like, oh, don't do this to me. Uh, well, the Hobbit, the Hobbit is is I think maybe just a little bit different because he was kind of in and out of that project uh, like a revolving door at times. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. It, this was originally going to be Guillermo del Toro, yeah. and then it was I think it was going to be somebody else. Then it was going to be Peter Jackson. I mean, I, I don't know what kind of a problem that studio had with him or if he had a problem with them or whatever the controversy was. I don't even remember. I don't think he wanted to make but, the movie. I think he was like, I don't really? I don't want to go back to Middle Earth. <laughs> I think he was just <laughs> done with the damn thing. And then he was like, fine, yeah. I'll do it. Uh, uh, out of curiosity, if I can diverge from the interview a bit, Please. what did you think of The Hobbit? Uh, well, um, so I love Lord of the Rings. I, I think that those three movies are are spectacular. I think that they have such emotional weight, and I think that the three films kind of act as one. Um, I remember, you know, the way that people describe seeing the first Star Wars movie in 1977. Uh, I was 16, when, so I'm just a little bit younger than you. I was 16 when I saw uh, Fellowship of the Ring. And, uh, uh, it, yeah, it had that impact. And it, and it was real event movie viewing, uh, like like real appointment, like I will be there opening night. And that's not – I'm a big film fan, but that's not the case for most, most movies that I see. Um, and so naturally, like for me, you know, 10 years later when The Hobbit comes out, that's like I get more Lord of the Rings. You know, it's, it's, it's like more pussy, you know. It's just like you exactly. can't, can't have enough. And, um, and so I uh, – so so I went and uh, and I liked it and I love Martin Freeman I love him to death I, I think it was such a good choice I wish I saw more of him um, but it, it it lacked that emotional weight that was in Lord of the Rings I understand everybody like the everybody's response is going to be well it's not it's just not that story you know but I think it's a different story um, about the smallness of hobbits in a large world and all that kind of stuff. And I think that that got lost. Some, now I, I don't dislike the movie. I've, I, you know, have watched it a number of times. The 48, did you see it in 48 frames a second? You're not going to care about uh, that. I, I, I believe I did. Yes. You yes, would I know, you would know. <clears throat> I think I did. Okay. Uh, it, it, it looked, yeah, it, it, it's, I noticed that it looked a bit fake. I don't. I don't quite know how else to say it. It looked just a little bit fake. It didn't look like. Uh, it didn't look like a particularly good integration of live action and CJ. It all kind of looked like an effect. Yeah, I mean, I saw it. I saw it two D, twenty four frames a second the first night because I was like, I got to see this pure because three like you, three D does. It, it, it not only doesn't do anything for me, it, it seriously detracts. Yeah, um, I agree. Like I'm. 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 Uh, I'm paying for discomfort really. Um, You're paying for, uh, uh, you know, having vision problems like 48 hours after you see it. I mean, I I can't shake that, that it hurts the hell out of my eyes. And it just, not to get too far off the point, but yeah, it looks terrible. Uh, And and what is three, when has 3D ever actually added something to it? That's the question that I want answered. And I haven't really had it answered yet. At the end of the day, it really just turns into another effect and not a particularly good one. I've never seen it integrated in a way that adds anything to a film. If I was going to – if there was ever a film that, w- it, that would have, <clears throat> I would think that it would be The Hobbit. Um, that's why and, – and, and for you, it was uh, The Great Gatsby. Um, uh, to, to, to a certain extent, even The Great Gatsby detracted. Even The Great Gatsby – No, no, no. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, don't misunderstand me. Uh, I, f- I was like – you know how you said you've never had that question answered of like, what could this add? I went to the theater that night looking for that answer and still didn't get it. And I feel like if gotcha. I don't get if I don't get it from The Hobbit and, and, and I, I'm saying for you, it seemed like you were like, OK, maybe The Great Gatsby is that movie. But still, no. Well, I had heard that, that, that uh, Baz Luhrmann was going to use the 3D for some sort of a purpose that was uh, different and far and above how it's been used before. I didn't see that. It's just it's just another dimension. It's just. Tobey Maguire in your face rather than slightly yeah. back from your face. Yeah, and, right. and no, I, I, I didn't <clears throat> see it at all. Even Avatar, like Avatar was supposed to be the big movie. I, I, I'm not seeing it. 
Uh, but it also, also is a piece of shit movie. That, well, I've seen some of Avatar in in 3D, and nah, no, it's it's it, it makes it look like it's it makes it look like you're looking through one of those little 3D viewers the whole time, and like you're watching a movie in one of those 3D viewers, and I'm like. What the hell difference does it make? I actually, I think I liked Avatar a little bit more than you did, but still, like, it, it, even if you hate Avatar, seeing it in 3D isn't going to make you like it anymore. No. And if you like Avatar, seeing it in 3D isn't going to make you hate it anymore, other than the fact that you wish your eyes weren't straining the whole time when you're watching it. Right. So, 3D does nothing, as far as I'm concerned. It's just an effect. There, well, there were, there were two movies I can think of. They did something for, something for them. Jackass 3D. Uh, I really believe it too. They shot it on the phantom camera at like a thousand frames a second and, and had like dildos flying at the camera in 3d that did something for the film. Um, <laughs> and, uh, piranha 3d, um, which was, uh, a horror movie about piranhas that eat people, lots of blood. And there's this one, uh, I want to say it's maybe a five to 10 minute sequence, of of this like uh, nude model swimming underwater in 3D, so anytime it's just hilarious or um, uh, uh, excessive, that's when I uh, uh, violence or nudity basically. Yeah, yeah. violence or nudity. Right. Exactly. Uh, oh, I, I, um, I, I will say this. This just occurred to me. The best use of 3D that I've ever seen was a little cartoon at the beginning of a Pixar film. I think it was called Day and Night. Oh, that's a great little movie, yeah. That that actually that actually did as I think about it come very close to adding something with the 3D. I saw there were that two movie different worlds. Yeah, yeah, and mm. and it really did uh help make those two worlds distinct. Yeah. I can't believe it. I actually have something nice to say about 3D. I completely forgot about that little scene. I think it was at the beginning of Toy Story 3 because I remember yeah. seeing that yep. in 3D. Yep. And Toy Story 3 in 3D is take it or leave it like anything else. But that little cartoon, that actually was kind of nice in 3D. Wow. Yeah. Well, as you say, I mean, a bad movie, it's not going to make it better. A great movie, it's not going to make it better. Toy Story 3 has yeah. got everything going for it, you know? That's right. You, that's And that's the thing. It doesn't – you don't need to watch it in 3D. No. What, what would uh, – Oh God! What would Citizen Kane be in 3D? Would that be better or worse, or well, would so, it be exactly the same? So it's a great. So that's a great example of. I mean, like, I, I I almost take issue with the phrase 3D or t- versus 2D because it implies that the screen really is flat when it's not in 3D. Where it's like we have all these lensing techniques, we have all of these composition techniques that give the viewer a sense of depth. Citizen Kane, like the, the thing that it does most successfully, the thing that, that cinematography students will study forever is its use, use of depth in the frame. And oh, yeah. you know, it, like the, the, that's, that is an illusion that we create in cinema. You don't need glasses. You don't need this little tiny extra bit of, for- to me, it looks like, um, you know, like those pop-up books when you were a kid, Yes. Like it just separates yes. it from the background. That's what it looks like. Absolutely. Me. That's that, that that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And I think that um, we've reached I think we actually are reaching that point uh, to where people are going to either accept 3D as the norm or just uh, completely abandon it. And I think we're on the road to abandoning it. Uh, if you ask we, we most yeah, if you ask most of the manufacturers of TVs how their 3D TVs are selling, I think half of them aren't even selling them anymore. And, uh, you know, the, the, the ticket sales for movies, I think that novelty is probably going to wear off in the next three to five years or so. Yeah. I, I just don't. And even even 3D gaming, uh, I've played Black Ops 2 in 3D. And it's a fucking nightmare. I mean, it's a headache uh, just trying to figure out. Uh, Black Ops 2 is just one example, mm-hmm. but because this is an FPS and maybe this is a, just a problem with FPS as I don't know. It's the only one I've ever played in 3D. Uh, but trying to find your target when everything is in your face, the way 3D makes it in your face is just a nightmare. I can't make head or tails of it and I, I, I suck uh, uh, completely in mm-hmm. 3D. I, I just don't think it's a viable addition to any medium. I can't figure out where this would be, where this would add to anything. And it dim, it dims perfect. the picture too. So it does. Sometimes I actually like I kind of lift my glasses for a moment while I'm in the theater and I see that nice colorful vibrance that I I start to envy like the cinema down the hall. I'm just like, should I just go start this movie over? I had exactly the same reaction especially in Toy Story 3. It's such yeah. in addition to being just such a, a well-written film, it's a great-looking film and and I saw that in 3D and I'm thinking 
I just want to see this in HD. I can't wait yeah. when this to this comes out in HD and you can see all those vibrant colors rather than just you know dimming everything for the purposes of bringing some things into the foreground and other things into the background. It's just it's that that's and that's the thing is like I don't think that 3D is a take it or leave it sort of thing. I actually do think that in many ways it's detracting from the medium. And if it becomes more and more commonplace, it really is going to detract from the medium even more. I know people are saying, give it time. Uh, we're going to improve the technology. Just just let it go. You well, know, it's, it's, just- it's, it's this problem of, so it, it's, it's inspiring the business and it's inspiring certain creators. So you have this issue where... Um, Exhibitors obviously can raise ticket sales, but they can also make theater going an event with it. it it's something yeah. that separates home viewing or mobile viewing from theater going. And in a world of in a world of mobile devices, why would anybody go to the theater? But the answer is because they still want to they still want to go out on a Friday night. I think that's not going to change. It's just the tent poles are are going to be the things to bring them out, not little ten million dollar indie films. And then, yeah, I. Uh, uh, like, uh, they have to do, you know, with, with the invention of mobile devices, you can get everything in the palm of your hand. We have to do something to get people into the cinema. And this is just one of the things we're doing to get people into the cinema and also to charge more for ticket sales because ticket sales are going up because apparently piracy. <laughs> Which is but, ridiculous. Um, I, I, I spoke to a, uh, I, agree. I spoke to a, a guest on this podcast a couple of episodes ago. He made this uh, $100,000. He's a friend of mine. He made like this $100,000 zombie film called Dead Season. And it ended up number two on Netflix for a couple of weeks. Little tiny zombie movie. Uh, but the reason that it did so well, I mean, literally, you could track its business, was that it screened in France, leaked in France, and there were a million torrent downloads in the U.S. And that just, that was its marketing campaign, was, were yeah, the torrents. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah the, the, so, something about uh, we have to charge more because of piracy doesn't add up for me. No, I, I'm not. I'm not the most business savvy man in the world, but I mean, uh, Iron Man three alone made all the money that you know the United States has, the United <laughs> States and Japan has combined. I mean, you're, you're, you guys aren't hurting for money. I mean, it, it doesn't. It doesn't matter how many people download movies. It doesn't matter how many people pirate things. People are still going to see these films. It impact. It impacts it. Um, it doesn't impact total box office sales, but what it does is it. I think, first of all, it creates a culture of media consumption, right? If you have more people watching more movies more ways, then you have more people interested in upcoming attractions, right? I, th- right. I believe that, that, to me, that math makes sense. But you, uh, uh, what you are going to see and what we've already seen is smaller movies have become smaller um, and get very small releases and very small audiences, which is good and bad. It means that more people get to make more movies, but it's not as curated. It's a lot more kind of like shotgun approaches. There's a lot more out there. It's good for people like me. It's not so great maybe for art in general, uh, although I would argue it is. Uh, I think everybody should make art. But the, the then there's there's uh, the bigger the big movies have become bigger. Right. So like now you I don't know if you read um, if, if you haven't, you, you ought to take a look at it. It's kind of cool. Steven Soderbergh did this like state of cinema address. And he kind of he taught he really talked about the amount of money it costs to promote these films. I mean, in Iron Man three, if the production budget's two hundred million dollars, they spent three hundred and fifty upwards of four hundred million for for uh, combined promotion and production. Because oh, the only right. way the only way to make back a two hundred million dollar production budget is to spend just as much promoting it, and then That's you'll right. finally make it back. But that means small movies can't do that. Ten million dollar, twenty million dollar pictures can't do that. The best shot is maybe like the Apatow movies because they ha- they're very broad. Yeah, the the, the 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 I'm noticing that a lot of this off the top of my head I can't I can't think of one. But there there were there was um, there were one or two really really small films that gained uh, a lot of success because of word of mouth. Yeah. Because they had absolutely no advertising whatsoever. Uh, yeah, a- advertising is key uh, to getting people to see a movie. Uh, like, um, supposedly, I'm actually kind of going into the realm of a disaster here, but supposedly the, Mar- the Narnia films were supposed to be big films. I don't think anybody was even aware that the third Narnia film was out. I, I didn't even know it was out until yeah. the day I saw it. I'm like, That's oh, I, I, yeah, yeah, I saw I saw it up on the thing. I'm like, oh, that thing is out now. Oh, yeah. it's been out for a week. It had absolutely no advertising whatsoever. And yeah, you have to you have to give people a reason to see the movie based on 
the content, but you also have to let people know that it's there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and so yeah, I, I can understand that. I, I'm still kind of. Uh, learning about what the impact that piracy is having. I think that to some extent the studios are using it as an excuse to jack up ticket sales. Yeah, of course. Uh, but I, I do think that there are a couple of legitimate concerns. Uh, and and just the use of 3D, I think, is is an excuse to, to amp up ticket sales. Although, really, are you aware of uh, how much more expensive it is to do a movie in 3D than as opposed to not doing a movie in 3D? That's something I want to learn. Yeah, well, it's it's the it's the method that determines that. So if you so so notice that every like every fucking movie seems to come out in 3D. So only a hand, very small handful of those, the Avatars, the Hobbits, um, you know, maybe maybe if if Man of Steel was in 3D, which I I think it was. I saw it in 3D accidentally, but um. Oh. Yeah, I went to I went to a I work in IT, so I went to a Dell sponsored event, and I was like, "Fucking free Man of Steel." Then the movie sucked, and it was in 3D, so great. But um, <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, uh, yeah, those movies actually require 3D cameras. So if you ever watch any of the behind the scenes stuff for Hobbit, they have to shoot the whole thing in 3D. That means getting those cameras, lighting for those cameras, coloring for those cameras, because like we said, it kind of dims it. You actually have to like compensate for that. It, it, it's mm-hmm. it's a really involved. And that was the second part of what I was going to say earlier was that it's also 3D is inspiring artists. They're not nailing it because they're very new to it. But it's I think they're looking at it as I'm talking about like uh, uh, wide techniques with lenses, um, telephoto lensing. They're looking at this as just another way of of lensing. They just don't really know how to use it yet. And it's really unwieldy. It's kind of like early cinema in some ways to them. I'm just not interested in going for the ride. But, but yeah, yeah. And uh, that's 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 the kind of thing where. If someone is saying this is inspiring, like I, I've heard, I've heard from a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, aspiring filmmakers and even not aspiring filmmakers saying how much 2001: A Space Odyssey inspired them. Yeah, I could never have anything against that, regardless right. of how I feel about that movie, regardless of, of of what I think of it as just a piece of art or even just a piece of entertainment or whatever. Mm-hmm. If something inspires you, I think that's great. I I, I think that. Uh, if 2001 was responsible for someone who wasn't interested in art being interested in it, that's fantastic. I could never have anything bad to say against that. So if, if 3 is inspiring people, I think that's wonderful. I just think that they need to do something with it other than just showing us another effect. Yeah, and, and that that's the other method is is they they take movies that are already shot in you know two D, um, which I don't like calling it, but two D, and and they they pro they post process it. That's actually really cheap. They do that in like two to three weeks, and then they pump it out in the theaters. That doesn't really cost them a lot of money. Well, well, I think that's why I think that right there is the biggest cash grab that yeah. I'm seeing oh, happening. Yeah. Is that like the the, the re release of Titanic? I mean, it's it, it's costing them. Uh, rhetorically, zero dollars to make like a billion dollar uh, return, and and that's it's that's just for money. I mean, yeah. that's just so obviously just for money. It's ridiculous. Um, I kind of think that seeing a cartoon in three D is more interesting than seeing something live action because I that that that's already a very artistic. Uh, visually, it's, an sti- it's styled. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can kind of see that. I almost actually, for as much as I didn't like the film, kind of thought about seeing The Lion King in 3D just to look at it. Yeah. Um, didn't end up doing it, but I, I can see where that would at least be interesting as a novelty. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of like why do I buy the same movie over and over again? It's because the formats change, and so I become interested in seeing it in a new format and. How often do theaters get to exhibit something in a new format? You can't just put – you can, but I'm not sure you're going to put as many asses in seats. But you can't just put Titanic out there and be like, want to try it again? Um, you, you're probably not going to get a wide audience. But if you – you got to put some kind of format spin on it. And 3D just kind of does that. And it's worked a few times. Uh, Lion King made $100 bucks when it came out. $100 million. Oh, oh yeah. How <laughs> much did God, Titanic I, – I don't even remember the figure, but holy shit. Uh, they, they made a lot – for practically no work whatsoever, just re-releasing it in a, in a different format. So yeah, I'm more interested. I'm usually more interested in uh, things coming out in HD and in Blu-ray. I'm like the blue, Blu-ray looks fantastic. Yeah. It, even even with with like uh, the movies that aren't even supposed to look good, it looks good. Did the, you see the HD the, is amazing? Did you see the Dark Knight movies in IMAX? I saw the Dark Knight in IMAX. Yeah. I didn't have a chance to see the Dark Knight Rises IMAX. 
blows my mind. Incredible. If, if I, the, wow. Yeah, that's 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 kind of where I see the format becoming interesting uh, because it's it, it, the, movies are a visual medium, but they're I, I think that they are almost meant to be seen. A lot of people keep saying 2D just because for lack of a better yeah, word, sure. but I think they're they're kind of meant to be to be seen that way. Uh, and IMAX presents it so beautifully uh, and, 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 and just in, in a much more engaging way, I think, than 3D. It doesn't, it doesn't, IMAX doesn't seem to me to be a gimmick. And that's why I like, I don't love all of his movies, but I like Christopher Nolan because mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan said, fuck 3D. Yeah. I, I'm not even going to do it. I'm not even going to use it. Nobody gives a shit about 3D. I wish 3D. more people just, were like him. So do I. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, and I mean, he's... He's kind of taken a lot of uh, hits for supposedly being mainstream, but I see him as thinking more outside the box than than most uh, mainstream, especially fucking James Cameron. I mean, yeah. the, the, going back to what we we're saying about to what you were saying about Avatar, uh, I think you hated that movie. I think I'm kind of yeah, I grew, I grew, to, I grew to realm. hate it. I, I think the first yeah. time I saw it, I was like, all right, and then I kind of like sat on it and I was like, fuck Avatar, and then I I watched <laughs> it again and I was like, this is the most like, um, like out of the oven cookie, like, like, like off the shelf, this sucks. And wh- why am I being fed that? Uh, it got me, it got me pretty pissed or I was, it, it was kind of like, um, like Spielberg's Lincoln, uh, which I think you reviewed, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, I, I was just like, this is so, um, like pandering and to like a, like an eighth grade reading level. Like I, I, I just couldn't stand how I'm like, how, how is this? I understand these are broad films, but because of things like dark Knight, I thought we all kind of raised our standards or something. I don't know. Yep. I, I don't know what I'm saying. I know. I know exactly. I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, the dark Knight really did say, you know, you can, you can even take something that is just supposed to be, mm-hmm for lack of a better word, cheap entertainment. I don't think superheroes are particularly cheap. Yeah. But th- a lot of the superhero films before The Dark Knight were cheap. Look at Fantastic Four. Yeah. Look at Catwoman. Look at Daredevil. These were just being used as dumb entertainment. Mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan said, I don't care if it's Batman or if it's fucking talking mice. I'm going to turn this into a good-ass story. And he <laughs> turned it into a good-ass story. He did. And That, uh, third, that third movie's a leaky boat, but other than no, that... Oh, it really is. <laughs> it really is. I mean, I, I, I was like... I think I was one of those people where I, I love the film series so much. And I mean, I would hope that I would... I rarely do this. I mean, mm. I love Back to the Future. The, the, I, I love that series. And even I have no problem saying that I really didn't like the second one. Yeah. With, with regard to the, to the Dark Knight trilogy, I went into the Dark Knight Rises and I'm like, you can do nothing. no, it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's good. I, it's, it really is. I can overlook the stupid Gotham <laughs> taking over of the guy with the, you know, the freaking order box that's broken. And he's the, uh, the evolution, the evolution of the confused Matthew review regarding Dark Knight Rises was very fun to watch. It was it, it was like all the stages of grief. <laughs> it was. It, it, yeah, it was. It was denial, anger. I don't know them in the steps. But yeah, it was kind of like a roller coaster that starts at the top and then goes down very, very fast. I remember I, I, the, I went to uh, AMC was was doing um, like a, a triple feature uh, for the opening of Dark Knight. And uh, I had just come back from vacation. I'm relaxed as hell. I, uh, I I had spent a few years loving the first two. I actually, I, it was a tough sell for me because I I, I grew up. <laughs> I'm weird, okay? Because I love uh, Batman Returns, okay? Yeah. Nobody else likes. Do you really? I, I didn't realize that people didn't like that movie, but I was like, I fucking love Danny DeVito as the Penguin. There's something about that movie, and, and looking back on it and knowing Batman better now, I realize that um, that it's more of a Tim Burton film than it is a Batman film. But I kind of dig it for being so. I, I kind of went in going like, "This isn't the Batman I knew." And I, I I was an '80s kid. I grew up liking those movies, so it took took a while to grow on me. But then I was like, "No, man, he's done something very interesting." And that Dark Knight movie, you watch that Dark Knight movie any time of the day, any day of the week, it's tough to not love, fall in love with it all over again. But I saw that I you know I did this trilogy thing. And it was me and a bunch of like um uh, like autistic nerds that were all up until like late into the night to watch. <laughs> trilogy yeah <laughs> and i and i separate myself like i'm not an autistic nerd myself and um and the first one fantastic katie holmes goes away it second oh, yeah, one's, second God. one's even better mm-hmm. and then uh 
And then, yeah, that third one kind of, it like went down a little jagged where I walked out. My, my wife was like, you loved it. Right. And I was like, just turned to her with tears. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> There's something I, wrong. I, I, I think that I had, um, kind of a loyalty issue there to where I want you, you just, you want so much when, when there's a trilogy, when there's a set of movies that you like and you realize that it's going to be a trilogy, it's like you said about return of the Jedi, you know, it's not, it, you know, hindsight being what it is, it mm -hmm. wasn't a great film. And yeah. you just, when, when there's a trilogy that you love, you want them all to be great. And I think I just kind of did more of wanting this to be great. I'll tell you something okay. though. The way that Christopher Nolan talked about that third film is in complete contrast to how George Lucas talks about his films. Explain. Because, well, Christopher Nolan, when he, he, first of all, after The Dark Knight, he was even talking about how he didn't even know if he was going to do another film, another yeah, Batman right. film. Right. He, he said, I, I don't know if I can make a great third movie. He actually posed the question, how many great third movies in a trilogy can you name? And I thought about it, I'm like, you know, Return of the Jedi wasn't that great. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it actually really is very difficult to end something like that yeah and and he he was talking about you know how this probably isn't going to be easy a lot pro people probably aren't going to you know love it as a whole i don't know a lot of reservations and just really a lot of honesty about how difficult this is and and, and a recognition of how maybe everybody isn't going to love everything that he does and uh the same is true of um uh the, the creators of back to the future Oh yeah, they Rob were talking. They were talking. Yeah, yeah. Robert Zemeckis. He he actually said in one of the the video interviews that they did on the Back to the Future uh, Blu-ray set, mm -hmm. he was talking about um, the people who didn't necessarily love two and the people that didn't necessarily love three, and he actually said something to the effect of everybody has an opinion and you have to listen to it and you have to respect it and you have to take it in. But at the end of the day, as a filmmaker, you just have to make the best movie that you can make and hope for the best. Yeah. And, and when I hear things like that, like hearing that from Robert Zemeckis, it almost made me want to take my Back to the Future 2 review down. Really? <laughs> because there was so much of, of a respect for people like me. Even though, I mean, I mean he, he supports 2. He stand, stands by 2. He, mm -hmm. he thinks it's a good movie, and that's, that's all well and good. But it's like there was such a recognition that there might be people out there who would have a problem with it, and he respects that. But he just has to do his job, and he has to do what he thinks is best for his franchise. Now, you contrast that with George Lucas's statements, who has almost proudly boasted that he doesn't give a shit what the right. fans think or what the, the viewers think. He's making these movies for him. Everybody else is just lucky enough to be along for the ride. Yeah, uh, that's what pisses me off. That that's what that, even above and beyond not liking the films. That's what made me lose respect for George Lucas as a filmmaker. Yep. Because I mean. It's 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 a hard line to walk for me because on the one hand I don't think you should ever let you, the viewers dictate to you as a filmmaker what kind of film you should make but at the same time you do have to be at least conscious of how the audience is receiving of your course. films and how they feel about it. So it, it it is a difficult line to walk. I think Christopher Nolan has tried to walk that line and I think that Robert Zemeckis now that I've heard his statements tried to walk that line too. There's a lot of genuine trust that I think that they have with the audience. Yeah. I don't see that with George Lucas. No, I, yeah, he, I see that. That's the great debate, isn't it? Is, is, um, when a film is created and released, who owns it? Now, if, if you want to make the, the argument that, um, that artists should be free to create and shouldn't be oppressed and whatnot, that's fine, but that doesn't make them immune from film criticism. That, no. that if we, we could, we could just never criticize another film again, if that were the case, right? That's right. Yeah. That, that's absolutely right. Um, that's, that's kind of the, what, where I see a lot of problems with people like, uh, the Wachowski brothers mm -hmm. who I think before they even release a film, everything that they say in interviews is covering their ass. Yeah. Uh, from criticism. I, and, and, and I don't, I don't trust that. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to, to see a film where the filmmaker is saying to me, if you don't like this, just shut up and go home and don't watch it. I mean, I, the, uh, the, the best, the best filmmakers to me invite criticism. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, they, they don't invite trolling, obviously. If somebody is just saying that that's kind of where I had the issues with the first incarnation of my minority report, where I realized in that review, 
maybe I've gone too far. Was it because <laughs> you were, it was, was it because you because you ended up so I watched both versions of the review. Now for anybody who's not familiar with the review, Minority Report was the large reveal for anybody who's a confused Matthew fan of his least favorite film of all time. And and it was spent the first incarnation of it was spent um screaming. <laughs> yep. Screaming about how bad the movie was. And was. I believe the second version was literally I mean almost identical words i was like i've watched this review before but not screaming so what really was it yeah. tone well i added i added a few things to the review that I, I i went back and i watched the first one and in addition to not really being a big fan of even of the screaming even myself and of all the fuck yous and all that um i, <laughs> I also noticed a couple of things that i wanted to say that i didn't say and okay. so that was an opportunity for me to add a couple more things for the most part it's the same uh, but once again, it's that strategy of me saying, if I had a reaction, I have to say what that yeah. reaction was. A lot of my reaction to Minority Report was, go fuck yourself, whoever was responsible for this. And I found myself saying that over and over and over in that review. And I can see what I wanted to do, but I think that um, it wasn't exactly representative of even what I was trying to say about the film. So you, so, so, so you, sound, you sound like a filmmaker. Um, you sound, and that's something that I really wanted to talk about here was the, because we can, we can talk about, um, uh, the ways we feel, feel about film. And I, I love doing that and I'll, I will do that all day, but something that I'm kind of interested in is your relationship to your art. And I consider these film reviews art. They do not exist in a vacuum. They're made for the purposes of sparking, uh, conversation. Um, yes. when you're at your most, um, passionate, you end it with, I want to know what you guys think. Um, especially when you haven't read any reception yet to a film, you're like, Hey, I still want to know what you think. Um, you, in the, in the case of the confused Matthew reviews, the ones that are sort of three part and structured, there's a narrative structure. You take us on a journey. There's uh, uh, re repeating notes. So it really makes me wonder. And then when you talk about it, when, when you're asked about it, uh, you're like, you know, I, I didn't, I'm not sure I said what I wanted to say. You sound like an, like a screenwriter. You sound like an artist. So what I want to ask you is, you know, w were you always a film lover and viewer? And did you were, have you ever considered making your own films? I consider you to already be a filmmaker because of these reviews. But I, I'm, I'm just curious about that. Oh, uh, well, I'll tell you, um, my love for films was really born out of... I, I don't want to delve too deep into like personal stuff, That's fine. but um, I, I I didn't have a great time growing up, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, uh, different people react different ways to not having a great time growing up, and some people get into alcohol, some people get into drugs, uh, some people make paper mache things. I don't know. Um, I I went to the, the most disturbed. Yeah, the most disturbed going to paper mache. <laughs> I went to the movies, and I didn't even realize uh, how I was thinking about them until I compared. Uh, there, there was a movie that came out, I think, in 1996 called Home for the Holidays, which <laughs> nobody remembers. Uh, it, the, the, I, I cannot think of a more obscure reference than, than mentioning Home for the Holidays. Uh, but this was around the time where I was seeing anything and everything that came out. Right. And I saw Home for the Holidays, and I'm like, this isn't going to turn into anything. The, the 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 screenplay was okay. The characters were okay. I think it had Robert Downey Jr. in, and I like Robert Downey Jr. Uh, but this isn't going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I think Independence Day came out in, in the same year, and I'm like, this screenplay was okay. The characters were okay. It was just as okay as Home for the Holidays. This is probably going to do very well. And I th thought to myself, what's the difference between the two? I, they're, they're, they're both so average, but I see one going places and I see the other being completely forgotten. And so I kind of started thinking about that and I started becoming really interested in the production aspect. Mm -hmm. Like, like, why was this just okay? Right. Why, why, why couldn't this be better than it was? And so I didn't even realize at the, at the, at the time that I was thinking critically. Yeah, I was just right. ha having these, these things coming off the top of my head. And I started comparing different genre of film. And I thought, you know, the reason Independence Day is going to be big is probably because, first of all, it's sci-fi, which lends itself much better to being popular than mm -hmm. just a regular average movie. Uh, second of all, there's the adventure aspect, obviously the special effects aspect. Right. Home for the Holidays is really just kind of a quiet go away film. Yeah. And so I started differentiating between the kinds of films, what the filmmaker is trying to do. 
And um, and you're a kid. I was a kid. I was 15 years old. Yeah. yeah. Um, 15 years old with absolutely nothing better to do <laughs> with my time than to think about all of this. Uh, so I went home and uh, I remember talking to my parents. I had just come back from seeing Jumanji. And I was like, that was a lot of special effects. Yeah. I didn't really care very much for the story, yada, yada, yada. And they're like, you know what? You should sit down and, and, and write this. You should sit down and try to write out a review. Oh, wow. So I wrote out a review and it was terrible. I, I, I tried to write the review and it was terrible. Uh, and I noticed that I say better than I write. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's even when I, when I do script my reviews most of the time, except for the general reviews. Right. But I try to actually put down on paper exactly what I said. And, uh, and that's another thing is that with regard to my reviews, a lot of these reviews were born out of conversations that I had with a, a small group of my friends. It's just what I said to them. So um, with regard to being a filmmaker, I, I, I have never thought about, I think I would probably be the worst filmmaker imaginable. I, I, think dis- I, I, I disagree. I, I, I think really? that um, you're, you're, you're the, you know, when I, I know you're a busy guy, um, you, you, you crank out content constantly. But when I have a new screenplay, I'm like, fuck, man, I wish he could read it because he probably could tell me where I Lucased it. You know, it, <laughs> j- just because you have a... Um, you have this sort of objective. And the only thing, the only way I can think that that might uh, disrupt you creatively is that maybe you, maybe you would feel like um, you didn't iron out all the kinks or you never quite said what you wanted to say, or maybe, maybe there would be kind of a perfectionist thing going on there. I, I think that, um, I think I'm like a food critic mm-hmm. that doesn't know how to cook. It makes, it makes I, sense. I, 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 yeah. I, I think that I can, I, that, and that's the thing is that I, I really do, I mean, I, uh, to to whatever extent that I can see these problems, sometimes I don't even know what the solution is. Yeah. Uh, so, sometimes, like, um, I can't even think of, like, there there are so many different things I think they could have done with Man of Steel mm-hmm. to, to really set that apart. But I can't really, really nail down anything definitive that I would have done differently other than probably just making a completely different movie. You know what my thought uh, on that movie was? Not to digress. But my, <laughs> I walked away from the movie. I doubt you'll agree with this, but I, I walked away going, why didn't they just not have a villain? Like, it, 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 is it no, possible? No, I agree. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I, yeah. I completely agree. The, the villain was the chink in that armor. Yeah. I, I absolutely know what you're talking about. Okay. I think that this, if, this ha- if this actually had been a Superman film without a villain, we would have had 100% Superman. Yeah. This actually really would have been an origin story. Because, I mean, I know uh, Batman Begins had... If, if you want to get technical, it had two villains. But it was like it wasn't even it wasn't even about that. The villains didn't even really do anything until the tail end of the movie. Most of that was seeing why Bruce Wayne was doing this. They try. I mean, they, they, they were obviously trying to do a story about um, what would happen if we discovered God was on Earth, and that that should be a story on its own without a villain. Yeah, I I I, I have read the the Jesus parallels. Yeah, I think I think. Other people see that more than I do. I kind of see like if if you if you're talking about well, I meant godlike so, power, godlike powers. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Not necessarily religious. Uh, well, I've heard people say that this is a Jesus movie, and I, I don't. I, I heard I kinda, that did, did you know? I didn't notice it at all, but I guess there was a halo behind him in the church scene and stuff. I don't know. I didn't. I see know. It. I oh yeah. I noticed that he was sitting uh, right. And it was like him. And then in the background was Jesus, literally. And then that's like the first time that I was like, okay, maybe, maybe this is yeah. a Jesus parallel. A little on the nose I mean, there, Snyder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, being very, very blunt. But I think if the, if it's if it is a Jesus parallel, it's like the flimsiest, most uh, just bare bones Jesus story. Because I mean, it's yeah. a guy who comes and saves us. Yeah, it's just kind of hinting. What movie isn't a guy that comes and saves us? Although it didn't it, really. It what it uh it. it, it I, I get, not to nerd jack our own conversation. I I was um, thinking later about I was like, look, even though it's not his fault what happened, he was the cause. You know, he he is responsible for all the disaster and destruction around him. Uh, I don't see how anybody would ever be like, truly, he is the king of kings. The, there, the, the, there was a, there there was a part in that movie where uh, you know you had this really big climactic fight. And half the town is fucked. I mean, half yeah. that city blocks was in blocks. burning rubble. And there are people crawling out of the rubble with, like, uh, rhetorically, with, like, limbs being, you know, yeah. severed off. And everybody's bloody and half the people are dead. 
and Superman's standing there, and one of the characters sees Superman, and he, she says, he saved us. Yeah, I was like, what do you mean he saved you? Everybody's dead. Metropolis <laughs> is completely, yeah, like, like oh, pe- people people have been completely displaced. Uh, <laughs> I hope they evacuated the city, was all I was thinking the whole time. Oh, I was like, did anybody get out of there? On the one hand, I will say that I think it was very successful in showing how fragile humanity was yeah. at the hands of these guys. I think... Th- just in that narrow aspect, I think it probably did that better than any other Superman film. Just showing really like this is dangerous. These guys really are this much more above us. Just even having a brawl, they can destroy half a city. Yeah. On the other hand, I don't really see what the purpose of that film was other than to show me special effects. And, and I think that's really what bothered me the most is 40 minutes. I, I, I was told that this was going to be demonstrating what Superman is as a character and as a person. I want to see the movie, the trailer advertised because the trailer looked like I was, it was a, you know, I'm from Boston. We just had the bombings. I was kind of looking forward to, it happened like 0.3 miles down the street from me. I was hoping that I was going to see a real up with people kind of movie. And instead I got Mm -hmm. a real down with buildings kind of movie. And yeah, yeah. I was just like, I don't, I don't need this. And 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 I was hoping the emotional heart of it was going to be Jonathan Kent, his, you know, his earth father. And instead, the story was, hey, kid, hide your bushel, hide your light under a bushel. Uh, you're good at math. Don't tell anybody you're good at math. Um, yeah. You know, inst- uh, I didn't. I, yeah, I didn't understand that aspect where he's saying uh, you need to wait because people aren't going to stand uh, under understand what you are. You need to. I'm like. What exactly is he waiting for? Or, or yeah, like until you're so power waiting? until you're so powerful that you can just take the entire Earth hostage, and they'll have no choice but to bow yeah, down. To you. Like, you know, wait, wait until the world is about to be destroyed, then come. And I'm like, do you really have to wait for that? Like, if if you if Superman demonstrated what he could do, I would think that that would be a deterrent. Right. Uh, and, and even if people didn't uh, accept him for who he is, what are they going to do? They can't kill him. I had this. Mo- I, I, mean, uh, <laughs> I had this moment at the. I I was worried the whole movie that everybody feared this guy because if I'm on Earth, I really am unhappy that he's here, and <laughs> because he's inviting all this destruction because of where he's from, and I can't do anything about it because we can't hold him captive. And he's like, this is my home. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> but but at, the very, at, the ver- at the very end of the movie, uh, uh, I, fucking spoilers. I'm, a, I'm Spoilers all the way. You're listening to Discount Film School where we do nothing but spoilers. Um, they kind of reveal that he is Clark. Like, he, 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 he uh, steps into his Clark Kent persona at the end of the movie. Like, he's going to need some way to disguise himself. He's going to need a normal job. And uh, there's always been that joke of like, okay, he's obviously Superman. He's just a dude with glasses. But Christopher Reeve really carried a different, like a a really great Clark Kent persona that you almost believed was a different guy. Oh, Uh, yeah. And this was just this extremely hot, chiseled man walks into a room with glasses. You know, everybody in in my mind, everybody in that newsroom was quaking with fear because they were just like, just act like you don't know it's him. <laughs> yeah, fuck, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, th- that's that's why Christopher Reeve's performance was so interesting to me, because he was exactly the opposite of Superman. Even, uh, even like, if I was in that world and I knew Clark Kent, I would think to myself, like, he looks exactly like him, but this can't possibly be. Yeah, him. It can't be. It's just got to be somebody looking at it because he's so completely the opposite and that's that's what interested me about the superman story it wasn't even the superpowers it was how does somebody who is invincible act like they're not invincible yeah like how do they even do that or how does how does some and there's real story stuff that happens in that in that richard donner movie like his father has a heart attack right next to him and you know uh laser vision and super strength don't start hearts you know like people can you know people close to you are gonna die and and you're gonna feel powerless which is especially uh vulnerable and tragic for somebody who almost never feels powerless um and to me that's and that's that's one of the that's, that's the core that's, story of superman that's right that's what i thought this movie was going to be about that's i think even what i was told this this movie was going to mm-hmm. be about is that it's this guy who is literally carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders because he's the only one who can save these yeah. people, but he can't save everyone. Right. That's what I've heard. And I mean, I have fans who have read, I have fans. I have friends who have read the comic books. 
I, I have friends who really know Superman, and they said that that is the core of the Superman story is. is that he can't save everyone. Right. And I didn't get that here. I, I, I got a guy who was flying around. You know, he was trying to save the world in the most basic roundabout building smashy way possible. <laughs> but I didn't really get that he feels bad that he could save these people. But he couldn't save these other people. Yeah, and they even they even did that better in the in the original Superman film on a one on one basis. You know, mm -hmm. he had to save this one place for to save somebody he didn't know, and he let Lois Lane die. I mean, that was the choice he had to make. That was a moral choice, kind of in the. It's kind of a dark nighty situation where yeah. one boat was going to die or the other boat was going to die. I, I kind of think that they had an easy way out in the first Superman film where he just kind of undid it. Uh, but you still have yeah, that moral question of what 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 is what do you do? Do you save the person who you promised, or do you save the person that you love? Yeah, and, uh, and I and, didn't. And that's what um, uh, that's what makes Lex Luthor actually a viable villain. Is you don't need somebody who can match him punch for punch. You just need somebody who knows how to fuck with him. And that's. Uh, and, and, and yeah. send two missiles in opposite directions. That's fucking with him. If, that's if, right. If you do, if you have somebody who can match him punch for punch, what was the what was your your great line with a uh, General Grievous? Or is like my my voodoo my uh my, my, my kung, kung fu is also big. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's my kung fu is also yeah yeah uh, yeah. That's <laughs> the least interesting <laughs> aspect to a superhero for me, uh, or 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 any even even with Star Wars. Is what they can do physically. Yeah. That, that's you know in, in in the original Star Wars films, the Force was something interesting. The Force was something spiritual, and it was something that had more to do with you th th than it did anything else. In the prequel films, they were just superpowers, and and I I didn't know that they said that this guy is the best Jedi compared to this guy. To me, they were all doing exactly the same shit. And, and that was kind of true in the original films, but that really came down to who the characters were. And, and, and it's exactly the same with Superman. It's it's who this guy is and why he does what he does. Uh, to me, is more interesting than just what he's doing. And I saw this as much more of a what he's doing film than a who he is film. That's what keeps us watching. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, we're gonna cut it off right there because confused Matthew and I go on for another hour and change, and uh, might as well make two episodes out of it. You can't just put all that all that food down at once. Uh, you all have to excuse how much we're talking. We I, I've been watching his videos for the last six years, like I mentioned, and so there's been a lot of kind of one-sided conversations where I want to be like, oh, I want to raise this point, or I agree with this, and uh, and he's been watching my stuff as well. So it was kind of a, a conversation combustion. Uh, next week we're going to talk about we talked a lot about just like. Uh, uh, movies that we like and why we like them this week. And we touched a little bit on his kind of beginnings into doing film reviews. But next week we're going to talk about uh, uh, some of my theories on why it's art and why he actually sounds a lot more like a filmmaker to me than a film reviewer. And um, uh, we're going to talk about Abo the Hugh Monkey, which was a movie I made that he liked a lot. And we're going to talk about reviewing comedy and whether or not that's subjective. And uh, yeah, lots of other fun stuff to come. So thanks for listening. <laughs>